from just west of the Ward Place Gate out on the San Diego campus of Seton Hall University. Coming to you from the LCP studios, he is Mike Dizzy Dizzeri, I am Tommy Chokaharski, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Mike, how are you? Merry Christmas, Tom, and Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you, sir. And what better Christmas gift could we have gotten, Michael, than this out-of-conference schedule? We started off our first podcast saying that we didn't know what to expect from this team. We thought we were going to get a bunch of up-and-down roller coaster. But there was a lot of excitement, and I, and I have to admit, this has been a very exciting non-conference schedule that we've come out on the positive side, more uh, for a better, or lack of better words here. So, But I mean, it didn't feel like we were going to end up with the result we are currently sitting with when this thing kind of rolled out of the gates, no? Mind blown. And I don't want to exaggerate how I'm feeling about this. I did not know what this team was going to do. If this team came out, you know, with seven wins, I was going to say, all right, you know, they're moving along. Things are going, you know, maybe we'll get to 15, 16 wins. But, oh, my goodness, Michael, we ended this out-of-conference schedule, 9-3. and three. Add to that, we came out 8-1 and one in the last nine games. This is crazy. Look, look, I, I think when we ended our, our first uh, broadcast, we were saying 8-4 and four was probably the target that we were all shooting for. And I, I didn't think we were going to get to 8-4 and four or 9-3 and three the way that we did. I think a couple of the results ended up going in some different directions than we anticipated. But it's interesting how the day that we decided to do this changes the entire mood of this potential broadcast year. I mean, if, if we had lost the Maryland game or the ball bounced uh, a different way in a couple other games, I think there might have been a lot more animosity and anger being projected in, in what, what we're going to go through as we recap this non-conference schedule here. Well, let's take let's break this uh, out-of-conference schedule down into brackets, so to speak. Let's take a look at the first three games. And, and after seeing the first three games, I thought to myself, oh boy, we've got a long season ahead. <laughs> well, like you start off with the first game against Wagner and everybody, everything was all roses, right? Everyone got into the game. Everyone's contributing. It was, it was a great defensive effort, and everyone's like, well, what was the last time we blew out an opening opponent by 40 points, right? It just This is not what we do historically. So I, I will point out, though, it is Wagner. They're, they are nearly marathon oil quality. I, I, look, I'm going to defend Wagner. Wagner has been at the top of the NEC. I know the NEC is nothing to brag about, but they've been, they've been a respectable opponent at the NEC. So, But look. All the signs were there that the ball was moving. Everybody was contributing. You saw signs from the freshmen. That's all you were asking for from the initial game out of the gate was, do certain players show potential? And, and on top of that, Miles had a had a spectacular game tying his career high at that point. Unfortunately, we followed that up with basically two clunkers. One, it, it kind of expected. You know, we're going to the Midwest after on our second game, young teams don't travel well and you don't travel well into the Midwest. And and that was kind of more expected, but we came out with another clunker against St. Louis. We made a run toward the end, but there's no way that that St. Louis team should have kept up with us. Like I, I think, like you said, I, I think the result against Nebraska was a little bit expected that they hung with them for about 30 minutes. And then you have a veteran Nebraska team playing a, a young developing Seton Hall squad. And we just kind of couldn't hang on for that last 10 minutes. And I don't think the final score of losing by you know, more than 20 was, was uh, respective of the entire game, the way that was played. Then you get to the St. Louis game and say, all right, but this is our chance to get one back. And I think that one kind of hurt. It just it emotionally hurt. It, it looked sloppy. And at the end of the day, when you looked at the stat sheet, there was a glaring stat that jumped out in the assist column. Collectively, between both of those games, we had a total of seven assists. And I know the first thing you said to me was, here we go again with the hero ball. Has anything changed offensively? Where are the plays? And, and and you looked at the team, and it didn't look like we were running any plays. Basically, we'd run the weave or we'd run the two-high pick, and then all of a sudden we'd have the ball on the wing, and one of the Mileses would have to try to do something, and, or we'd force a shot toward the end of the clock, and it just wasn't looking good. The ball was not moving. See, I, I don't think it was the same hero ball that we had last year. I think the ball, we played a more isolation basketball with the guys we had last year, I think Miles, or both Miles, as you described, were forced into hero ball situations due to the lack of offensive flow. So I, it felt like they were taking hero ball shots, but it, we were late in the shot clock and they had no choice. But the, the result, the, the optics of it just did not look good. So moving on to the, the next part of the schedule, dare I say it, the Pirates became the Left Coast Pirates. They came out to California to come to the Wooden Classic. We weren't expecting 
a whole lot. We were hoping for a couple wins. After the first three games, we were expecting, okay, we've got Grand Canyon U. They've done some nice things over the last few years. But lo and behold, the only coach in the country that didn't game plan or has a game plan for Miles Powell was Thunder Dan. I expected more from Dan, but Miles goes off for a career high. What was it? Was it 40 he went off for? I believe it was 40. And it just felt like they didn't have an answer for him. But that being said, it was a, it was a nip and tuck game down to the final couple minutes. I think we even made uh, ESPN bad beats for, for covering the spread as we pulled away towards the end. But, I mean, at that point, you were still going to be happy with one of two, you know, in the, in the championship round, whether it be the third place game or maybe losing in the finals. And then Utah basically, you know, craps the bed and loses to Hawaii. And we basically get a almost like a walkover opponent into the championship game. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. And, and then we play Miami, and at that point it felt like gravy, no? I, absolutely. You have Miami walking in, who supposedly has a tough team. They looked imposing. They looked good to start off with, and we handled them pretty well. I think the, the part of that game, or the, the overall theme of that game, that kind of made Pirate fans, including myself, you know, take a step back and go, whoa, I'm kind of excited here, was... You know, we were really struggling offensively. Miles was the only answer offensively in the Grand Canyon game. It was a rock fight in the Hawaii game. And then all of a sudden, we're clicking on all cylinders and scoring in the, in the 80s, running up and down the floor with that Miami team. It just felt like the offense all of a sudden found another gear. And to do it against Miami made you kind of raise your eyebrows and go, well, this is a, this is a high major type ta- talented team, a team that's supposed to be in the top 25 potentially. And all of a sudden you got three wins and a good resume type non-conference, you know, neutral site game instead of this sloppy one and two, two and one we were expecting. So yeah, you had to be excited at that point that things were trending up. I will put my Kevin Willard hat on for a second. ESPN and the uh, tournament uh, coordinators did us no favors. We played the late game in Every single game, every single day, I understand playing a late game in the championship game because that's when the championship game was played. But you're taking an East Coast team, you're and and I'm sorry, we are a little bit more imposing than a Grand Canyon in Hawaii. You put us at the last game of the night. That is a late game, and that that doesn't help us. Right, look, you're you're up against football still. You're up against Thanksgiving weekend, and let's be honest, we were also what, the fourth, fifth, maybe sixth ranked tournament that ESPN was putting on TV that weekend? I, look, I it is what it is. I'm not losing any sleep over it. I know, unfortunately, some of the Pirate fans didn't get a chance to maybe see that game late on, late on the East Coast or any of the games. But once again, came out of that tournament excited. The write-ups were positive, and we're heading into the Louisville game. So here we come. Here comes Louisville into the Rock. And here's something I felt was very embarrassing. Where are our fans, Michael? We just came out of... A impressive run and the Wooden Classic. We've got good vibes all of a sudden. The first three games are long are long forgotten. And we've got the athletic department going to Twitter, begging people to show up for a Saturday afternoon game. This isn't Tuesday night at the Rock 630 against Iona. You know my take on this. It, I, I felt like it was embarrassing. Uh, look, we have a fan base... That is, once again, isolated in a pro sports market. Seton Hall basketball is just not going to trump the major football, baseball, basketball fan base that's in the area. So unless Seton Hall is top 25 or a marquee team is coming to town, I just don't think it raises the eyebrows to get 12,000 fans in the stadium. And I know what you're going to say, well, isn't Louisville a marquee team, right? The best team we've had coming to our place in the non-conference in probably the last 10 years, no? It's got to be. And there's a lot of excitement there. Chris Mack has just taken over the program. It's it's still a name. It's still Louisville. I mean, Louisville's not UCLA. Louisville's not Duke. But Louisville's still a big name. I think you had 9,000 tickets sold for people who understand that. But the minute you ask the other 3,000 to show up, you're asking for the casual fan. You're asking for the, the friend of the friend to show up. You're asking for the, the non-Seton Hall college basketball fan to show up. Was there a number next to Louisville? Well, I ask you this. Uh, no, there was no no number. I will I will answer your question. It, I'll it, ask you this. It, though. Is it Patino instead of Mac? No. I, I will ask you this. Has the Fox Sports 1 contract with the Big East hurt potential attendance? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, that was. I mean, I guess what you're going for is here. I could sit on the couch at home and watch this game on my 70 inch high definition television. Not. I don't make that correlation for this game. Maybe you're not going to get someone to show up to Wagner because I have that type of convenience. But 
I think when the big marquee team comes to town, I would like to see the fan base show up, and we still struggle in that capacity. Well, it was a good thing that more people didn't show up because we crapped the bed against them. Didn't crap the bed. We crapped the bed. We went into the last few minutes with the lead, and then what happened? Offense stalls. We can't get a play run, and we lose that game. And once again, all those good feelings coming out of that wooden classic kind of start dissipating. Look, look, I I was – Absolutely, emotionally down after that game, just like you were. But that you didn't describe the game. I was you gave me like the last two minutes in, in a microcosm. I mean, they came out and were up by twelve early in the first half, so they showed that they could kind of build a lead against an inferior, you know, against a strong opponent. Louisville rallies back. They regroup at halftime. They come out and they took a nine-point lead midway through the second half. That's where the frustration kicked in. That's where you're sitting there going, "Hey, this is still a young team." Do they know how to finish off a game? Can they stay composed in crunch time? And did they? No, they did not. So I, I get it. We, we came out with all this emotion of, wow, the team's on an upward trend, and there was a lot of telltale signs of lack of half-court offense. We went through another cold spell of, what, no buckets for 12 minutes? So some of the, the stuff that we have been historically frustrated with in seasons past reared its ugly head again. And I think all of a sudden the emotional roller coaster kicks in. I get it, but they didn't crap the bed. They just they missed out on an opportunity. Uh, we'll agree to disagree on that. Okay. Ne- next up w- was a tune-up game against New Hampshire. Wasn't anything special with the exception of potentially a kind of breakout game by Mamu. I'm not going to get overly excited about it because it's still New Hampshire, but he's been sh- he's been, he was showing signs of being aggressive, playing well. So I will I will take that with with a grain of salt and say, hey, good job there. It was a tune-up game. It felt like they were kind of sleepwalking a little bit through the New Hampshire game. But I also feel like this kind of falls into the lull of how the fans felt during this this segment of the conference, uh, our non-conference play. In addition to us kind of just, you know, sleepwalking through the New Hampshire game as a tune-up, our best win on the on the resume to this point, Miami, is all of a sudden trending in the, in the wrong direction. They had lost at home to Rutgers, and then they also lost at home to Yale. And all of a sudden, we're looking at this thinking to ourselves, is that even a quality win at this point? No, it's not at this point. Now, all of a sudden, you have to 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 look at that win and go, eh, it's okay, at best. And then we come up to the game that I was dreading, to be quite honest with you. It was Kentucky's coming into town, and we're going to the Garden, which everyone always says, that's our home away from home, which I I don't quite believe in, but okay. I was not feeling good going into that Kentucky game. It, It was one of those games where I think you just hope you don't embarrass yourself on national television. I mean, we played a very competitive game on national television against Louisville the week before, even though we lost. But now you're hoping not to get blown out by 20 or 30 against Kentucky. But if we can, I'd like to kind of just pause on this game and really kind of explore or just relive what it was all about. Because I think this is a special game that's going to go down in Seton Hall history that at the time, I think we appreciated it. And as we get further and further away from it, I think sometimes we lose sight of some of the unique aspects of what went down in this game that made it so special. So I'll tell you this from a 20,000 foot perspective, Michael, I looked at this game and I'm thinking to myself, I've seen this game before. (laughs) I've seen us play (laughs) with better teams and stay with them. I've seen us take it down to the wire and continue to play well. And then at the last second, something happens. We miss a bunny at the rim. We, We miss a jumper. And I'm just thinking to myself, it's happening again. But this time it was different, wasn't it? Well, look, there, there, I hate to I hate to say this, it was magic in the game. I mean, how many times have you seen a player kind of go off in the zone for Seton Hall like Miles Powell did at the end of that game? I don't remember the last time I've seen something like that. And Miles had kind of a quiet game up until, I don't know, a couple minutes into that second half. And then it just, like a light switch. Oh, Miles only had three points in the first half, and then he finishes with the 28. I mean... Some of the shots he were hitting, he was hitting were, were deep three pointers. Because remember, we're at the Garden, so you got both three points lines painted on the court for that game. And Miles always seems to fall uh, prey to I got to shoot behind the line that's furthest back on on the ground. Always drives me nuts, and he's still shooting it three feet behind that line. And look, I mean, he he was in the zone. The shot that he hit to put him up three with with one and a half seconds to go, double pump, step back, defender in your face. You're like, oh, it's the best we can get before we go to overtime. And it goes, and look, I, I don't normally get off my couch and act like a child, but I'm, I'm doing laps around my living room, cheering in front of the television because there's no that, that shot has no business going in. No, and, he, and as well as he played offensively, 
I got to give a little bit of love to Miles Kale for the defensive job he did uh, against Kentucky. Keldon Johnson scores 15 for the game. I, but look, I, I, I know that you were that really annoyed that, that he even hits that shot to send it overtime. So if you want to... You want to digress and go through that play? No, I... Before we get there, we get we got to give Miles credit. And then, to, to much your chagrin, Torian Thompson showed up to play. <laughs> it might be the only game he's shown up it to has, play. It has been the only game that he showed up to play. Look, but got to give credit where credit's due. Mama gets in the foul trouble. Enzi's in some foul trouble. And they got some major contributions from Thompson. He, he had a couple shots. Willard let him play a little bit. He got into the flow of the game. I'd love to see more of that. And yes, he, he was a savior. He gave us that that third option on the on, on the night. I, I don't think we should have been in overtime. I, I, like I said, I, it was an exciting game. I think what makes this game special is Johnson hits the half court shot, and and they go into overtime. If this if he doesn't hit the half court shot, this doesn't go down as one of the greatest games in Seton Hall history because you don't have that fantastic finish. But that finish shouldn't even happen. No, no, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, Willard at the end of the press conference said he shouldn't have had. Romero Gill guarding the inbounds. I thought that was a good idea. What the bad idea was having everybody fall back into this kind of quasi prevent defense where no one's even, everyone's below the three point line. Yeah, I, I think Willard sometimes at his press conference is just trying to say the right thing from a coach speak perspective and, you know, just not throw his players under the bus. And I, I think he was reaching for an answer. You're absolutely right. Oh, you put that seven you, foot two guy. You, Absolutely. Had Grant Hill to Christian Leitner, everyone has now learned that you never leave the guy on guard and throw the inbounds pass. So, yes, Gill should be on the inbounds pass, but I'm up by three. A two-point basket cannot beat me. So every one of my defenders should have been at the three-point line, face-guarding their defender, make them catch the ball in a difficult position. And if they catch it inside the three-point line, well, then they can't hit a shot to beat you. And, and, and we're sitting there watching it after it goes in, and we're thinking to ourselves, here we go again. Well, look, everybody got back to that hollow, and in all the post-game write-ups, everyone said that they were dejected. You could see the emotion go out of the players, and of all people, Miles Power, the you know the leader that we described him as, stepped up, said, "You know, pick up your heads. We got five more minutes to play." And they came out, and they kind of gut punched Kentucky right out of the start, and hit the first four points. And we got a great play from our freshman in that in, the, in the overtime. So Anthony Nelson's the one who kind of takes it to the basket to get us started. We got contributions from everybody on that team, it felt like. Quincy McKnight had a, had a sneaky good game. It seems like he keeps on having sneaky good games for us. The way that game finishes, once again, the, the back-and-forth aspect is what makes it so special. Seton Hall has a lead. Kentucky all of a sudden down four, comes back, and hits a three. They hit back-to-back buckets, but they hit the go-ahead three by, once again, uh, Johnson in the corner off of the fast break. Under a minute to go. You could just feel the air come out of the Pirates again as he hits that three to put him up two. I, I didn't think they were coming back to answer that basket. And Willard draws up a play. Thompson's out of position. Nelson improvises, attacks the basket. And I'll be honest, that was picturesque basketball. To watch that ball after Nelson attacked, dribble drive, draw two defenders, and then pass the ball around the perimeter as everybody else made the right basketball play, it was beautiful to watch. What shocked me, and I would have bet my mortgage, I would have bet the mortgage that when the ball got to Thompson at the top of the circle and the defender is coming running at him, I think he's putting up that three to say, I- I'm here. I'm here to save the team. But nice little pump fake. Passes over to Freeman. Pump fake pump fake from Kale. And nothing but the bottom of the net. Right, look, I, it, was, it was euphoria. So you have Powell going nuts, hitting shots he shouldn't be hitting. You got a half-court heave to send it to overtime. You got back-and-forth action in overtime. You got another three at basically in the final seconds to win it. And it's just, it's a game for the ages. It's in the garden. It's against a top 10 Kentucky and it's against Kentucky. Yes, that, that is, that, that's key. That key. Kentucky's a blue blood, regardless of how their, and their season is kind of going up and down a little bit too. They lose to us, but they beat North Carolina. So they're kind of right back in the mix. So it is Kentucky. Look, for, for me, that's an all time top 10 game that I've watched as a fan where I was that emotionally into it on the edge of my seat, and I walked away going, wow, and non-Seton Hall fans picked up the phone to call me to say that they were watching. Maybe comparable to the the Isaiah drive against Nova, the Sterling Gibbs shot against Nova years past. Yeah, I, it, 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 didn't that, have, it didn't have the magnitude of a, you know, a tournament game of the Big East tournament of the NCAAs, but it felt, it felt like it was that 
at the moment, did it not? Yes. And I, I beyond that, I can't remember a Seton Hall game going that direction. No, it's usually no. we usually go up the other direction. So you're so, on you're on cloud nine now, aren't you? I, oh, I I'm I'm euphoric. I'm thinking to myself, this is this is fantastic. We come into the the bottom half of the season. We dispatched Rutgers, not impressively. That, that game should have been big-time double-digit win, but Rutgers fought back. It's a rivalry game, so okay. But they, they got up 17. Powell hits the shot when they cut it to three to immediately boost it back to six. I, I know there was a couple moments of, uh-oh, are they going to let this slip away? But they didn't. And other than that, I never felt like Rutgers was the better team. I never felt like we were really that threatened. And you know what? So, so maybe it wasn't a sexy win in the box score. No, and not to bang on Rutgers, but... A lot of early season articles had Rutgers, you know, being impressive and you know going to be a, a fighting c- contender in the Big Ten. I don't see it. I don't see the talent. Isn't there. it the same article that they publish every year? <laughs> it's the same article they've been publishing since 1992. Is, I guess isn't isn't the purpose of what these beat writers are supposed to be doing is to hype up this matchup for you know to have something to write about in the middle of December. We are the better team. There, There is clearly still a gap, and it is what it is. I, I felt like they showed it on the court that game. New Jersey is the blue state. Moving on. Move, moving on. We had another tune-up game against Sacred Heart, just like the Wagner one. Not a whole lot to draw from it. I'm sorry. It, we're supposed to beat these teams. We're supposed to beat them by a lot. And players are supposed to have big games against them. So so, so we're looking for player development in those types of games, and, and we're just going to gloss over the fact that Mamu has his kind of breakout game for 23, 23 points and 9 rebounds. I, I'm going to hold my Mamu thoughts till a little bit later. Fair enough. And then we come into our last game out of conference, Maryland. So so now we're eight and three. We're, we're kind eight. of we're kind of right where we thought we'd be. We, right, and people start getting, I think, taking this one for granted at this point. Well, I heard a lot of house money. This one's gravy. At this point in the season, I don't think this is house money. Right. This is a big team. It, you know, it, it was ranked earlier in the season, so it's not fantastic. But we're going to Maryland. This is a chance to make a stamp, and, and steal one of those games. I, I, I agree with you. However, we're 8-3. We just described the roller coaster ride that we've been on. We started off with, I don't know what to expect from this team. With the up and down roller coaster, you still didn't know what to expect from this team. What were your expectations for the long-term prognosis going into this game? Going into this game, the way we had played the previous seven, we had to win this game. For what? To be a tournament team? Yes. Okay. At this point, at this point, expectations are now changed. So, so you've changed your expectations. Absolutely. I think the average fan still doesn't know what to expect from this team. They don't have a number next to their name. They're eight and three, which on paper doesn't jump off and go, "Wow, Seton Hall is having a great season." They know we beat in Kentucky because it was on the national news. But other than that, I don't think the average fan thinks we can make the tournament yet. So, in their minds, this is house money because they don't have NCAA tournament expectations. So, I, I get where you're coming from. But I think the other half of the you know the fan base is sitting there going, it is what it is. They lose this game. We thought we were going to be there anyway. The way I look at this at, at this out of conference schedule is, the more games you steal here, the easier your Big East schedule will be. It is hard to add an extra one or two wins out of the Big East schedule. Don't disagree. They are dogfights. They're all basically rivalry games, with the exception of uh, DePaul, I guess. Um, but you're not going to come out with an easy schedule. Last year, we finished, what, Mike, third in the Big East? But we were a game out of being yeah, seventh out of the Big we, East. We were, we were. That's that's how tight that middle of the pack of the Big East Absolutely. is. So if you're looking to steal a win somewhere, this is where you steal the win. This is where you make your money. I think my mind going to this game became, let's see what this team can do. True road environment. The last time we were in a true road environment was game two against Nebraska. Didn't turn out so well. If they could flip the script, I'll set my expectations higher afterwards. If they don't, I'm not going to basically rain on the parade of, hey, it was still a pretty good non-conference. But I get where you're coming from. A lot of opportunity going into this game, no? Absolutely. And I have bagged on Willard and his coaching decisions previously. What a good choice to start Gil. It it was almost inspired. I'm going to turn over a new leaf here. I want to say... Coach did an outstanding job, probably one of the best coaching jobs he did while he's been here at Seton Hall. Not only did he start Gill, I thought his rotation choices throughout the game were solid. I can't believe I'm saying this. His decision to call timeout 
after the put-back dunk that put Maryland up by four late in the second half. Normally, he lets another bucket or two go by before he gets control of that situation. Absolutely great timeout there. They draw up a play to get the ball into their best player's hands. Powell hits the traditional three-point play, and they're right back in the game. Now we're at the eight-minute mark, and he all of a sudden brings back Mamu and Enzi. Excuse me. He brings back Enzi and Thompson into the game to get Mamu and Gill out so he can preserve Gill for the final four minutes. If I would have told you at any point that we have to make a coaching decision to make sure that Romaro Gill is on the floor for the last four minutes of a ball game, you would have laughed at me. He his performance was was eye opening. Yeah, look, I, he he was a he was impactful in the Rutgers game. He was clearly making a difference in that Louisville game. Excuse me, in the Maryland game, and coach recognized it. So therefore, I got to give him his his kudos. And, and you know, we always say coach tends to not make adjustments well. We were getting killed by Bruno Fernando in that first half. I mean, he had he was on his way to doubling his scoring average. I, I want to say he either had, either had 13 or 15 points in that first half. And what did he get? About four or five more yeah, the rest he, of the he, way? He finished with 19. I remember you texting me going, here's another guy who's going to go off for a career high against us. And we decided to double team him in the second half, force other people to beat us. Maryland was shooting the three cold that day. And look, it, it was just good coaching decisions at every aspect of what we did. I, it, it was one of Willard's finer moments. And far be it from me for making fun of anyone's radio broadcast, but I was driving home from somewhere listening to the Maryland broadcast of the first half of that game. And I'll tell you, the announcers were making it sound like Bruno uh, was going pro. Like he decided to come back. He wasn't going to test the NBA waters. I, it I was out of my mind for that, a little bit. That was a front line that was clearly bigger than ours, more talented than ours, should have been the difference in the game, and we neutralized it. We only got out-rebounded in that game by five, and we have gotten out-rebounded by Rutgers by almost, what, 15? And, and Maryland only out us by five at home. So it was just, look, it was a great effort. It was a team effort. We hit free throws. When's the last time you heard us say that? 85% from the line, 18 to 21 that game. I, I was just as happy with that game, and I know you're going to get on me for this. I felt like that game at, at the end result is just as important as the result against Kentucky. I, I, I don't know if it was just as important. I'll, I'll give it a, a high level of importance, but we're almost like this, like victims of being a prisoner of the moment where after that, Maryland game. People were saying that's a bigger win than Kentucky. I, I'm sorry. Kentucky was ranked ninth in the country. Maryland was tinkering out there with high 20s. I, it's not as important as Kentucky. It wasn't on as big a stage as Kentucky. It wasn't the Garden. It was in College Park during Christmas break in front of 8,000 people. It's not the same level win. On paper, it's going to be a true road win. When they sit down in that in that committee room and they look at the optics of the numbers, it's still a true road win versus a neutral site win. But, but I get where you're coming from. It's a line drive on the, in a box score. Yeah, it's a, like, it is an absolute line drive in the box score. At the cachet of the Kentucky win, I get where you're coming from. But at the end of the day, we are trending in the right direction as a team. You see development from this team from where we were in that Nebraska-St. Louis progression to where we ended that Maryland game and I think that's what the fan base was excited about and I'm excited about is the development of this team heading into the Big East. So we, we, we've kind of talked about the development of the team. Well, let's let's look at some of the development of players, okay. like certain individuals. Um, where do you want to start? Let's start at the top. I mean, it's going to be funny to start there, but we all knew that Cheese was coming in here as our best player. Okay. But did we have any expectation of how well he was going to play? I feel like I want to bring out my notes from the first podcast and kind of see what we highlighted as what could be concerns and then what could be their their ceiling potential. We said for Miles, he we knew he was going to score, but would he be an efficient scorer or was he going to be the Jeremy Hazel volume shooter? And in the second half of the Nebraska game, he started forcing the ball. And you were like, uh-oh. Same thing in the St. Louis game. And you're like, Miles is going to get his, but is he going to take us out of games? He has not done that in this positive stretch of play. He's been efficient. He's been attacking the basket. He's been facilitating. He's been phenomenal. There there was a question that you had uh, about his maturity level, because there were a few instances in the first two years that, you know, he kind of popped off or 
got into little scrums he with did. players that were beneath him, technically. And I, I think he's answered that question. I, I think he's the certainly the the leader on this team. There's no question on that. And he's he's bringing the, the team together. He got their heads up during a Kentucky game, like you mentioned previously. This is his team. I'll, I'll, I'm going to push the envelope. Is he Big E's player of the year material at this point? I haven't seen much of the rest of the league. I mean, we I saw Marcus Howard. He's, he's had two forty-plus games so far, right? Um, and he's fabulous, but I've also seen him disappear last year at times. Um, Shamari Pons is still there, although again, they St. John St. John's hasn't played anybody this year. Basically, is he in the conversation? Oh, I think absolutely. So, where where would you see Miles at the beginning of the season? We saw him as a potential All Big East player. Now we have him in the Player of the Year conversation. I have to say that Miles has exceeded our expectations at this point. Okay, let, let's go to your probably favorite player of all time here. He's up there. He's up there. And we were talking about the big Mamu. We, we started the season with a couple of younger players in Kale and Mamu that we thought had to make big second-year player development jumps. Has he not? Oh, he, I, he, I, I will say this. Mamu has impressed me with the level of aggressiveness he's brought in. He attacks, and he's, he's better when he attacks. Actually, one of... He, he had a you really hate when he attacks. You no, say he goes to the rim no, softer no, no, no. than a cupcake. No, no, I'm not talking about when he tries to dunk the ball and misses on like a 90% clip. He had a rough game against Maryland, but there was one play where he backed down his defender. He drew in a second guy and he dished it off real nice and gentle to uh, Gill. And Gill had this nice little hook. It was a nice playmaking moment. Mamu has great has good playmaking abilities when he stays aggressive. So he has his moments. He does have his moments. But I'll tell you this. This is what bothers me about Mamu, and it's not fair to him. It, it, it's it's the initial level of expectations that was placed on him. It was, you know, it, it's the fan. I mean, people love this kid. This kid, They loved him from the moment they saw him for some reason. And I'm telling you what, you guys, and I'm pointing at you, Michael, I'm right listening. now. I'm, I'm, I'm here to defend you. Go you ahead. You make more excuses for this kid, and you accept more mediocrity from him than you do from other players. There's been a ton of complaints about Kale. Kale has not shot the ball particularly well outside of the Maryland game, but he brings it hard on defense every every game, and eventually those balls will start dropping. All right, so like people don't give Kale the benefit of the doubt that they give Mamu. So you want to talk about Mamu? Okay, his three best games came about against the lower tier opponents that we faced. His best games were against uh, University of uh, New Hampshire, against Rutgers, and against Sacred Heart. If you take that those shooting games out of the Rutgers and the Sacred Heart game, he's shooting 15% from threes, which is about the same clip that Torian Thompson's shooting. I don't care if Torian Thompson's taking one foot three-pointers or he's take, or Mamu's taking two foot good shots. Do I get he's a, still missing them. No, do I get a chance to defend the, the, the man? Can I, when, can I defend my boy here? When I'm done bringing up my points. Oh, boy. And he's shooting an angel-esque 57% from the line. This is the guy that was coming in to this program as the stretch four. Now, Mike, c- uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but stretch four has got to shoot, can't they? All right, so so let, let's let's give Mamu uh, some some credibility here because he just like buried him six feet under. He went from being a five minute end of the bench minute per game player. Ten, but okay. He was not getting ten minutes. He was getting about ten. He was he was backing up Angel. If Angel needed to play thirty five minutes, Angel was playing thirty five minutes. Point was, he, he becomes a end-of-the-bench rotation player to all of a sudden now in your starting five. So to go from where he was to being thrust into his starting five, he is giving you almost double-digit points per game scoring. He's leading the team in rebounding. And yes, his three-point shot has been lacking, but there are signs that his confidence is there. I, I, I don't want to go into the Kevin Willard had an individual workout with him and tweak his shot, but, but, but maybe that worked. After that article came out to say that he was working on his shot with Willard prior to the Rutgers game, in back-to-back games against Sacred Heart and Rutgers, he shot 7-9 from 3. I know he had a bad game against Maryland, but the point is we're talking about trends. His three-point shot is trending in a positive direction, and he's been confident in taking it. It was trending in a positive direction for two games out of 12. And this last game, he went 0 for 4. Now, again, I don't want to bag on him. I think he's a good ball player. I think when he gets stays aggressive, he's a lot better. He's a good playmaker. But he gets a lot more benefit of the doubt 
than other players on his team. I, I the, three be- the, three, the two worst games of his season so far have come against Kentucky and Maryland, the two toughest games we played. He went 3-8-3 and against Kentucky. He went 3-6-1 and against, against Maryland. Also two of the toughest front lines that he's going to face the entire season. My, my point is he's giving you solid effort defensively. He's always in position. He's always hustling. We're talking about what you thought from a progression. So maybe some fans had loftier goals. I think they see the skill set in him. And maybe some people, including myself, said that skill set might remind you of a potential Arturis. I know that drives you nuts. I know that drives you nuts. But people saw see the skill set. So he's not producing at that level. But when he shows those signs, people are encouraged. He is averaging in points and rebounds about the same as he was producing last year. If you take it on a per-minute basis. You can't do that. Sure you can. You can't do that. You don't know that if a player is going to be given five times the amount of minutes that they're actually going to produce at that same level. You just don't know that. Look, Mike, you're, you're 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 telling me that he's leading the team in in, uh, in rebounding, and I'm telling you he's six foot ten. He should be get, he should be leading the team in rebounding because he's getting the most minutes. I'm gonna say that I'm happy with his current productivity, and I'm happy with his progression, and maybe the the the, the story is not fully written yet to see what his full potential is gonna be. So if you want to say he's getting too much credit, fine. I'm still happy with what he's brought to the table. All right, let's flip the script. I'm done beating on you. You could beat on me now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna admit it. I I, I was probably wrong about Torian Thompson. <laughs> I think everyone was wrong about Torian Thompson. I don't understand it. I don't know what happened to him because there's times where he doesn't look like he knows what he's doing out there. You keep bagging on him because you keep saying he plays me 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 ball, and I'm telling you, I don't know that he's playing ball. I I think the average person looks at numbers on paper, saw what he did as a freshman in the ACC at a top program in Syracuse, and just assumed that those numbers, after having a year off being integrated into the program, were going to translate into the same numbers, if not more development on top. So whatever he was putting up was like 9-5 and five at Syracuse as a freshman. I think we expected him to be somewhere, what, 13-6 and six is what we talked about. And he just, he hasn't, I'm at a loss of words at this point. He hasn't found the flow, doesn't understand the system. I don't get it, but sometimes I think we see what we want to see as fans, and, and we don't kind of find what the true story is behind the scenes. There are articles that were written while he was a freshman at Syracuse that were already quoting Bayheim saying that he, he got benched for a couple games because he wasn't playing defense in a zone no less. And I know you keep harping on the defensive side of it. And and I agree. He looks awful in defense. Even against Maryland, there's a spot in Maryland where he switched on the Kales man because they did a pick or something happened where he had to switch on. And he tried to, and you could see him trying to focus on the man. The ball got reversed. And at that point, he was supposed to fall back to his own man. And Kale literally had to grab him. And shove him back toward the man he was supposed to guard. That happened in the Nebraska game, too. Game 2 and Game 12, there should be some sort of progression. Once again, so you sometimes hear the analogy in baseball that when a you know, when a player has a bad run of at-bats, they bring their offense out to the field to play defense. I think it's the exact opposite for Thompson. I think his frustration on defense is translating to poor offense. So his plus-minus has been atrocious in the limited minutes he's played. He's had games where he's a minus 10, a minus 6 against St. Louis. We were up by 12 against Louisville, and they brought in Thompson. And guess what his plus-minus was for the game? Minus 12. He, he, he didn't play in the second half. So in the six minutes he played in the first half, we gave the entire lead back. I think he looks at his frustration on defense and says, I got to make up for it on offense. So therefore, he's not letting the game come to him offensively. He gets the ball and says, I'm, I'm talented. I can show what I can do. And he does a lot of one-on-one, me-me type shots. You, you know, he, when he decides he's going to the rim, it's hard to stop him. He's so long and he's so talented that if he just kind of figured it out how to put that into the offense. Oh, okay, so you, you don't want him sitting behind the three-point line and his numbers haven't justified. He's like 3 of 18 shooting three-pointers. He's like he's like worse than 15%. So Mama's got him on that on that aspect. And yes, and when he's attacked the basket, he's, he's looked really good. The problem is, and, and then this is my frustration with Thompson, even his attacking the basket is still isolation one-on-one. And in the Kentucky game, even though he scored double digits, a lot of his buckets were isolation one-on-one. We needed it. So no one was complaining. 
But it wasn't flow of the offense. Yeah, and it's this is as much as we've given Willard credit for certain parts of certain games this season. I think this is where he's going to make his money. He's got to figure out a way to get Thompson to be one of the supportive casts. We are not going to go through this season and be successful on a regular basis if we can't get something out of him. I'm ecstatic about the outlook for what this team could be. And still, they're getting zero from Thompson. If we got half of what we expected from Thompson, what would be the ceiling for this team? If we got the full expectation of what we thought Thompson was going to bring, where do you set the bar for this team right now? I mean, we look at, you know, we're 9-3. and three. I mean, it's not a hard thing to say that we're 10 wins, 11 wins. I, I, look, I, I don't know if the results of the non-conference truly change. Maybe it's maybe it's plus one more game. But to go into the Big East season off of this player development analysis, I, I'd be I'd – be, sky's the limit if Thompson was playing to his potential. Speaking of playing to potential, I thought that the biggest issue this team was going to have, and it's been the opposite just like with Thompson, we thought that the point guard production was going to be this glaring issue that has always been. We, we spent a good five minutes on it doing the history of Seton Hall point guards under Willard, and another, another guy getting converted from two-guard combo guard to point, and a freshman in Nelson, we thought that was going to be our biggest challenge, and it hasn't been. No, uh, you know, while he hasn't been the smooth offensive point guard we'd hope, Quincy McKnight has played above expectation, I think. You know, we were kind of saying, well, he was Sacred Hearts leading scorer. Who cares? But he's been he's been a good leader. He's stopped picking up his dribble a little bit. He's been playing tough defense. He scores big baskets when we need him. He scored back-to-back in a Kentucky game when we needed him right right during overtime. He's been a pleasant surprise. I'm going to defend Quincy. I don't think he's ever going to look smooth as a point guard because he's not a point guard. So what he's doing in the limited scope of, of time, being our starting point guard, I think he's exceeded expectations. And his defense has made up for whatever his offensive learning curve is at this point. His on his on the ball defense is outstanding. And coming off the bench, we have the prototypical point guard. You have the future at the point guard. Anthony Nelson with the ball in his hand makes me comfortable. Now he's young. He's going to make mistakes. He's a, you know, freshmen do these kind of things. He's going to get abused by older, stronger players at times. He's got to learn to finish at the rim a little stronger. That's probably his glaring issue right now and his his jump shot needs a little more confidence. And fine-tuning. But, but but boy, can that boy shake. I, look, he's, he, the ball's on a string, as they say, right? Oof. He does not look like a freshman. He does not look like he... Uh, Willer has made the comment, he needs to show more anxiety out there, more sense of urgency. He is so cool, calm, and collected. He makes McKnight look a little rattled and, and, and unpolished as a point guard. To get 15 to 20 minutes the way he's been giving you those minutes... He's been a, he's been a, a revelation so far. Yeah, he's been stellar. When he's at the line at the end of those games, there have been a couple of games where he's hit foul shots to close out games. I'm comfortable. And and when's the last time were you comfortable when you've been comfortable with any Seton Hall player on the line? I like Powell at the line. I like Powell at the line. But you're right to have a freshman there and to hit five out of six against Rutgers and he didn't even look phased. Look, I, I'm excited for the prospect of the point guard position. I think we are set for the next three and a half years. I, I going into next season. You have McKnight and Nelson sharing the role. I have no concerns. That has been my biggest nightmare as a fan of who's running our point. And all of a sudden, 12 games in, I, I, I don't have that concern anymore. So, so Mike, we, we, we see where the team's developed. We see how the players are developing. What are we going to do during a biggie schedule? This goes back to what we were talking about from an expectation point from the, the Maryland result. Now that we've gotten that win, I think it's absolutely fair to jump on the bandwagon. It's not a house money game anymore. It's in our pocket. You have a true road win. You have a neutral site Miami win. You have a big neutral site Kentucky win. You have right now a top 35 type strength of schedule. They've done the work that they needed to do in the non-conference to be a legit NCAA tournament at large contender. I'm just concerned with what the bar needs to be because the Big East has been down so far. Outside of us, the Big East has underperformed in the non-conference slightly. There's been some moments here or there. Marquette's been doing pretty good. St. John's is undefeated against a soft schedule. Nova's had some ups and downs. But top to bottom, the, the conference has kind of struggled. So if you, if you look at the top teams that each Big East team has played, Marquette's had a real out-of-conference schedule. Yeah. Nova has a real out-of-conference schedule. And we've had a tough one. And that's about it. I, I mean, agree. You have, you know, Creighton's played Gonzaga and they played Nebraska. Okay. But, they, got, they got a Clemson win. Clemson was top 25. Yeah. 
Um, but most everybody else has not really had that much of a challenging uh, season. So I don't have I don't have much of a feel. I'm gonna, I, I think Xavier challenged themselves, but their results did not back it up. I right. think they have like five losses at this point. I, I'm gonna uh, I always go with the magic twenty number. Okay. I say twenty wins in the Big East gets you. Uh, coming out of the Big East, gets you into the tournament. So we're talking 20 wins prior to the Big East tournament? I'm saying 20 wins all, all in total. So Big East tournament. So that gets, that gets me 10 and 8 then. Plus, I, plus one in the Big East tournament? 10 and 8, at least one in the tournament, and we're in. I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke holes in your 10 and 8. I think that's the number, but I think you could get to 10 and 8, and it could be a soft 10 and 8. You want you want to play this out? You want to go through the no, schedule? No, I'm, I'm I'm just saying I think you could easily sweep the two bottom feeders in the conference, which is Georgetown and DePaul, and that gets you four wins. Okay, right? You could technically beat Xavier twice and get another two. That gets me six. Let's say I lose to Marquette twice and I lose to Nova Nova twice. Okay, right? That's four. I'm a six and four now, and then I split the rest of the way and I win just my home games. I beat St. John's. I beat Providence. I'd be Creighton, and then I think um, I'm, Butler. I'm, I'm, I'm Butler. Thank you very much. So I get four home wins. I lose to the two marquee top teams, and I sweep the bottom feeders. Where are my marquee wins in that 10 wins of the Big East schedule? You don't have any at that point. I don't. So I, I feel like we're on a bubble-type cusp there. Not in, bubble. Now, I, I look at the schedule, and a few things pop up to me. We don't have one of those bad road trips that we seem to have every no, year. No, it's a fair schedule. It, it, it's it's well done. Even our kind of sections of time where we're having multiple road games in a row, there's time in between them to rest up, get home, rejuvenate, things of that nature. There's one portion of the schedule that sticks out. There's a section where we're at Marquette, at Providence, home to DePaul, and at Nova. That's a scary part of the schedule, and that comes up relatively quick. Well, that means that you better take care of business in your first four. I think they got to be three and one, possibly four and zero out of the gate to kind of give themselves some breathing room for that stretch that you talked about. And you got to get two out of those games. It's you got to go two and it's two. It's going to be tough. I'm not. You got to get two and two. I would, and I'd prefer to get either Marquette or Nova as one of those two. But what's the likelihood of that? I don't know. Like I. I I just I think personally, my opinion is I'd like to see it eleven and seven. I'd like to see you take that ten and eight, find one more marquee win somewhere in there. I like I, I'm even okay if you go ten and eight and you stub your toe against a Georgetown, you stub your toe maybe against Xavier where you shouldn't, but you win a couple more big games. Then I think your ten and eight could carry some water. See, I I, I see us not I see us being in the middle of the pack, the upper middle maybe, but middle of the pack anyway, and it's gonna be a dogfight. Night in, night out. I'm just concerned that the Big East, based on their non-conference strength of schedule, based on the other team's performances, that maybe they are only a three or four big league this year. And then, look, conferences are going to have ups and downs. So we've gotten lucky to have six, seven teams in the conversation every year since the new Big East has been formed. But we're, we're missing our you know, our big giant at the top. Nova's clearly fallen off with all the... Uh, the players that went pro on them. I just think it's a three to four bid league, and you don't want to be fifth at ten and eight. Well, here's the fun thing about Nova: since they are in there in a down cycle, at least as far as they're concerned. Uh, here we go. You want the title? You want the title? Don't I you? don't know necessarily about the title, but Mike, do you recall last year before we started putting this? If not now, when? If not now, when? That might be this year. I look. This team, if it plays with the same type of trend and the same defensive intensity that it showed in the non-conference, defense travels, defense is consistent on a night-in-night-out basis, I think this team is going to be in almost every game that they play. It's a matter of, are they going to get that Miles Powell to step up and be a finisher? Or are they going to get a second or third consistent scorer? If they do, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. They have a shot to win the Big East regular season title. Oh, Mike. They, they, they're, Mike they're, they're gonna, don't uh, do this to uh, yourself. They, they could. They, they, would that shock you at this point? It would because maybe because history tells me there's going to be. I'm not saying they're going to be 16 and 2. No, history tells me that there's going to be the Seton Hall slide. They're going to be somewhere in this season where they lose four out of six games, something of that nature. We're going to be calling for Willard's head. We're going to be saying, get Shaheen out of St. Pete's. Get him over here. It wouldn't be a season if we weren't calling for Willard's head at least two or three more times throughout this roller coaster. The pitchforks would be out. The torches would be lit. I, I, look, I, I think they could surprise. Uh, and I'll back off. I'll back off what I just said. I, I think they could surprise if the schedule breaks the right way. They could be a 12 and six. They could finish top three. 
and I can't believe this, I think they would be a shoe-in for the NCAA tournament if they got to that number. I If they make 11, if they do 11 and 7, Michael, I will be absolutely shocked. I'll be thrilled. I'll be absolutely shocked. I think 11 and, seven you're, I think 11 and 7, you're in. That's a tough road I think 10, I think 10 and 8, you're on the bubble. And work to do at Madison Square Garden. I think 12 and 6 would shock everyone. And then people are going to be lining up to sign the contract to extend Kevin Williard to, to like 2030. So, so all right. So, 10 and 8 puts us at 19 and 11, right? Yep. Two wins at the Garden. Two wins at the Garden, I think you're automatically in. I think one, you're in that. You finish up with 21 and 12. And this is just worst case scenario I'm sure I'm talking about right sure. now. 21 and 12. How do you not get in? I, I think they're right. So, I... I Here's what's going to happen. Because this is realistic. On paper, you're not asking for anything above and beyond that can't be done. You're asking to be slightly above 500 in conference play. The bar is going to get raised. This is still a young team. And as excited as we are, I just said they could possibly win the entire conference. But as excited as we are, I think you're right. I think we're going to see some ups and downs. We're going to see Mamo have a good game, have a bad game. Kale have a good game. Kale have a bad game. We're going to have Torian Thompson headaches for the rest of the season. There's going to be this you know, underlying developmental story of this team. And look, I, I think we're going to be right on the fringe. And and again, as we said at our first podcast, it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, are, are you not, like, anticipating every game on the schedule coming up lately? Are you not entertained? I, I can't wait for this St. John's game. We're 28 hours as of taping time, I think, away from the St. John's game or so, something of that nature. Look, we've had hours away. We've had Four consecutive Saturdays, five consecutive Saturdays, where I'm like, I can't wait to watch this team play. Louisville, Kentucky, Rutgers, Maryland, St. John's. When was the last time you were had, had your entire holiday schedule just blocked off to watch Seton Hall basketball? I'm just wondering the last time when we made national TV like this. I, I need to go back and find a time that my wife allows me to watch Seton Hall <laughs> basketball five consecutive weekends. I've been like dropping the gauntlet going, this is a big game. I've been saying this for five consecutive Saturdays. Honey, this is a big game. I got to watch this clear the schedule. No? Yeah, it, it's it's been a lot of fun. And hopefully it stays like that for another uh, three months, four months. And uh, we take this into deep into March, hopefully. Like, like any other seat on the roller coaster, I'm enjoying it. It has its ups and downs. I have my, I have my anxiety. I have my euphoria. But let's hope it continues. Let's just hang on tight. Like we said, in in less than a day and a half, we'll be we'll have an idea of what this team really looks like when they play St. John's at the Rock. I, I would love to be doing a podcast towards the end of the Big East season, complaining about us being sent out to Denver at poor altitude again. How about that? I'll take it. And you know what? Denver's not that bad a flight here from San Diego. So how about that? I'm in. Excellent. All right, Mike. Well, this has been a blast as always. Uh, we hope that that we were entertaining, and uh, we will figure out when the next time we're going to put this together. So. Maybe we can do it a little more often. So thank you, everybody. He's been Mike Desiri. I've been Tommy Chill, and we have been Left Coast Pirates. Uh-huh.